This podcast is produced by Yizzy Research, whose mission is to do research and help others do the same. Visit us at yizzyresearch.com. While you're there, sign up for the mailing list to stay updated. I met Asha Tolman when I was interviewing for a UX researcher role some time ago. I really enjoyed interviewing with her and I thought that she had a very rich UX research background. At the time of our conversation, she was working as a research manager at CNN, but had been a UX researcher at Google, Airbnb, and Bloomberg LP previously. She's conducted research and she's hired other UX researchers. Asha is so well-rounded and I know that you will really enjoy hearing from her today. In the first part of our chat, Asha discusses the following, how living in different cities affected her UX research career and how geography creates bias, pros and cons of remote UX research, how being a journalist in Qatar helps her become a UX researcher here in the United States, creating user interview questions as an art form, secondary research as an underutilized UX research method, how she scopes and plans research, and lastly, tackling the research planning question during UX research job interviews. Welcome to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for aspiring researchers, current researchers, and research enthusiasts. I'm your host, Imani, also known as Izzy, and I am the founder, CEO, and principal researcher of Yizzy Research, a boutique research agency providing UX research services, career coaching, and of course, this podcast. Yes, let's go ahead and get started with where your UX researcher career has taken you. So uh, so your career has taken you to Portland, Mountain View, New York City, Ann Arbor, and these are all very different cities with different UX research markets, job markets. So how has living in these cities affected your career path as a UX researcher? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think that I start. so yeah, I started off my career in, really in college by doing some internships. Um, one, one of those was in New York. And then one, which was probably the most formative for me was um, I ended up working for a few months in the Middle East in Qatar, working as a journalist there. Um, and then, as you mentioned, since after that, you know, Ann Arbor, um, a lot of time in the Bay Area and now, now I'm in Portland. Um, I, I think as a researcher specifically, as a dedicated researcher, I've really lived in two places, the Bay Area and then Portland. Um, and I think my experience has been probably similar to others in that there's tons of opportunities in the Bay Area. I think in the last year, certainly with COVID, really seen that shifting, a lot of places more open to remote work. But I think in general, um, I, I think as a researcher, it's actually really helped me to live in different cities. And I think especially even if you if you're able to get that like cross-cultural experience, um, I feel like being in different environments is is really helpful as a researcher because number one, um, you know, you kind of are reminded about um, being a true true observer, true outsider in a culture. Uh, but I think also, you know, certainly when I was in the Bay Area, there were definitely times when you sort of found yourself in a bit of a bubble. Um, and I think that can be the case, you know, I work with a lot of folks in New York City, um, that can be the case there as well. And so even sometimes the, the use cases for the product or the things that um, you might assume about users can, can get a little biased geographically as well. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of moving around if you can, um, and I think I'm excited to see in the next couple of years um, more opportunities being spread out from kind of like the coasts. Yeah, when I was looking for UX researcher jobs, I noticed that pretty immediately earlier in my career. I'm like, oh, okay, I either have to be in New York, LA, or San Francisco, it seems, or maybe Seattle. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned that yeah. living in all these places, sometimes, especially when you mentioned being in the Bay Area, that can make you um, biased in terms of conducting research. Can you talk about that? What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there's always I guess there's always going to be bias in, in conducting research. So I don't think it's necessarily you know, means that you, you can't <laughs> conduct research in the Bay Area. It's just about acknowledging those biases. I think um, 
I think from a bias perspective, it's, I think it's, you know, you, you might be a little bit more um, constrained in terms of participants in some of those cities, um, unless your product just is for that city, you know, like in the Bay area, I think at a certain point we felt like in-person participants really were almost tapped out, right? Like <laughs> that, that there were so, such a practice of UX research there that, um, you know, the folks that we were talking to probably ultimately weren't going to be representative of the whole U.S. necessarily. Um, so we just had to do a lot more like remote work, which I think was totally fine. Um, I think what I where I see it being maybe more of a an issue is just in like product decision making. Um, it's a little bit easier, I think, for um like product teams and designers and sometimes researchers as well um, to just forget that there's lots of people that are not, you know, living in the same environment. I think there's a lot of amazing things about the Bay Area. I'm really learned a lot from my time there, but there's a lot of things about that, that San Francisco and that area that are totally not true almost anywhere else in the, in the US. Um, and so I think that that's the case where, you know, you know, for example, if you're working on a payment product and you're like, well, you know, if, if this transaction fails, it's fine, we'll just hold a $500 deposit, for example. Um, and I think sometimes like, just by the nature of being in the Bay Area, you might be like, oh, that's totally fine. You know, $500, people can handle that. And in reality, like economically, that could be a huge amount of money for somebody. And so even in those like, you know, product and policy choices, just trying to be more aware of, of attributes that are different outside of where you're living. And that especially can be hard to do in San Francisco because you're just surrounded by so many other people who are really energetic, super smart, but have a very similar life to you. So in terms of like bias, so you mentioned that um, there's a lack of in-person testing now because of the pandemic and the quarantines, right? So you also talked about bias as well. Do you think that a lack of in-person usability testing or focus groups for user interviews, a lack of UX research in person, do you think that that will reduce bias in the long run or increase it? I think it's it's a good question. I think it'll, it will just be a just a different bias. <laughs> you know, it'll just be. I mean, I'm sure that there is valuable data that we're losing by not being able to do a lot of things in person this year. Um, you know, one example is I think uh, in this last year there was some like mobile testing that um, I really wanted to do. And it's a lot harder to do that virtually. It's kind of like, you know, set up your, this app on your phone. So I can see your phone. I can also see your face. Or, um, in some cases I've even had participants like turn their laptop around and hold their phone in front of their <laughs> webcam for me. Um, so I'm sure, I think that there are things that were, and in, in addition to that, it's like, you know, that in-person camaraderie, even for teams working effectively, um, let alone for UX research, there's been a loss there. Um, but then on the other hand, like you, like you, you know, refer to, I do think it gives, it, it lessens the excuse of being able to necessarily find the exact participants that you want um, in that now you're dealing with a participant pool that can, can technically be based anywhere. So then these other attributes um, might become more important. So um, I think that's just, this is also a factor that like the fact that a lot of the products I've been working on haven't necessarily been geographically based. So, you know, someone who's working on uh, or, ha and they haven't necessarily been super physical products. So I think for, for researchers who are working on something like you know, a, a hyper local product or service or like a really tangible physical good. I think that like, it's probably for worse um, because they might not be able to have that, you know, the physical component of their design really truly tested. But for, you know, digital products and services, I think it's just really been like a shift in a different type of bias. And also keeping up with this theme of like bias and diversity. So you mentioned that having having lived in so many different places and having worked in so many different cities has allowed you to have a more uh, holistic, well-rounded perspective as a UX researcher. 
However, you mentioned earlier that you worked in Qatar as a journalist. We have to talk about that. So although that wasn't UX research, I'm pretty sure being a journalist probably helped you significantly as a researcher. So can you talk about how did you how did you end up in Qatar as a journalist? Yeah. How did you go from that to being a UX researcher here in the States? Totally. Yeah, I know. It's not it's not really one of those things you can kind of like slip in and then move <laughs> away from. Um yeah, I so it was actually through my undergrad. Um, I studied journalism at Northwestern University in the Midwest. And um, as part of that program, and this is kind of a, I feel like a theme for my career is I really am a hands-on learner. I really enjoy learning best by doing. And so something I liked about Northwestern's journalism program at that time, I think they still do this, is they do a three, you know, a three-month residency. So you actually go and work as a journalist for three months. And um, so at the time that I was up for my residency, one of the opportunities was in Qatar. Um, and at that time, Northwestern had like a small campus there as well. So I worked for a publishing company that put out a few different types of magazines. Um, including um, a business magazine. And that was really the one that I ended up writing for the most. Um, and it was a really formative experience for me on a few different levels. I think one, it made me realize that I didn't want to be a journalist, actually. Um, I think I think what I realized is that I'm really good at being given sort of a scope or some parameters and feeling like I can really go and tell that story. Uh, but I, what I realized was that in Qatar, I actually had the privilege of pitching my own stories and coming up with my own thoughts. And, um, and while I found that like really exciting, it just, I couldn't, it, there just was something about it that I couldn't click for me. And I felt like if I truly really wanted to be an excellent journalist, I really, it was, you know, I need to have that gene. I needed to have that that drive of feeling like, okay, this is this is the niche I want. This is the beat I want. This is these are the stories I have to tell. Um, and so, I so on one level that was extremely helpful. Um, I think personally, it's much easier to try things out in your career and realize the things that you don't want to do versus in the past, there's been times where I've been like, I want to do everything. Like I want to do this job and this job and this job. So that actually was super helpful. And then I think on another level, it, you know, it really helped me think about um, kind of like a fearlessness and an openness um, in terms of you know, I, I basically went there for three months. I didn't know a single person in the entire country. I had to, and I think as a journalist, you really have this great excuse. And that's something that's true of a UX researcher as well of, you know, it's your job to meet people, to form relationships, to learn and, and kind of have this excuse of being an apprentice or an outsider. Um, and so, and I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, and I think I also really, you know, afterwards felt like this is a big challenge and I, you know, got some really great stuff out of it. And, and that I think really helped me realize like it to just take some of the fear, I think generally out of sometimes what we do as researchers is really putting ourselves out there sometimes. And so I think the more that you can build up those experiences, the better. And, um, and also just constantly reminding yourself, you know, that you may be surprised and that you probably have assumptions that you're bringing in. So how, so you already kind of touched on it a little bit, but how, how much, how many of your, so what journalism skills did you bring with you to UX research? Yeah, I, there's, I think there's a lot of really relevant skills. So, I mean, I think just some even specific methods, for example, interviewing, you know, you might have different goals from interviewing as a journalist um, versus a UX researcher. But I think very early on, uh, just this idea of asking open-ended questions, um, you know, not asking leading questions, doing like pre preparing those questions, right? It's like your questions are a major tool. 
um, and building rapport certainly through your questions, not sort of starting with a, you know, how much money do you make every year, but kind of a that there's an art form to those and a way of guiding your discussion, of probing, of following up. Uh, that I think is hugely important. And as UX researcher, you know, you're pretty much going to use interviewing skills in so many different methods. So that's a big one. I think another one that um, I find to be sometimes underrated within UX research um, is this secondary research um, methodology. And so certainly as a journalist, you know, it's a core part of your role to do this background research, to find supporting um, or, you know, secondary data that can, that can help, you know, tell the narrative within your story. And and as a UX researcher, I think that's really an underrated method that I've tried to bring in when I can, uh, because I feel like number one, the you know you might be able to get an answer to your question much quicker than you think, right? Because the the secondary research is already done, um, and it kind of prevents you from duplicating. Um, but I also find that secondary research can, you know, there can be fun things that you do with it, right? It doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm passing along this paper to your team verbatim. Um, so that I think is, is also really a, a strong skill that translates. And then I think the last piece is really on the storytelling front um, as a journalist and you know, certainly the, the classes that I took and the experiences I had, I was always way too wordy. <laughs> and so, uh, I think clarity and being concise is so important with UX research. Um, and I always feel like it's such a, I feel so sad when I hear research being presented or I see research and it's so clear that it's extremely rigorous and so much has gone into it. And I can just tell the audience isn't paying attention because you know, the way it's being presented is too wordy or too long, or there's no kind of so what about the the statement or the research. And so that's also another thing I think I, I feel like I definitely draw from is how can I communicate really concisely. So now let's fast forward to present day. So that was when you were a journalist in Qatar and what you learned from that and what skills transferred to being a UX researcher. So in present day, you are currently in Portland working as a research manager at CNN. So what are your responsibilities as a research manager there? Yeah, so um, UX research um, manager role, um, there's, there's a, a few different things that I do. Specifically, I work on emerging products and platforms. So those would be new products that CNN is thinking about. And um, really my responsibilities start with, I think being a really excellent partner to product managers, designers, engineering, you know, business ops, whoever I'm working with. And so it's really about, for me, I think my role is about really understanding the core, you know, priorities, the the product goals, the design goals, and then creating really a research roadmap. Um, and as you know, most folks know that definitely changes. It's not set in stone. But um, my job as the the research manager is to create this roadmap and try and marry the the goals of my partners with you know what I and my fellow researchers think is important to know, and then really to figure out how to execute on that roadmap. And so, you know, it goes from the, the kind of understanding what the goals are and knowing the product inside and out, making the roadmap, and then to actually, you know, um, working with other researchers to make it happen or actually executing on those things myself um, might also involve working with a vendor. So figuring out, you know, budget that we have available and, and all that. I'm happy that you mentioned the UX research roadmap. So I, I made one for the company I worked with previously. And when I was trying to look online for some resources about it, I couldn't find anything. Like UX research roadmap, UX research roadmaps don't appear to be socialized <laughs> as much <laughs> as say product roadmaps. So how do you design a research roadmap? How do you know what to put in it? Who do you share it with? How do you know, how long do you plan ahead? Do you plan ahead for the first two quarters of the year, for the year? Can you talk more about your research roadmapping process? Yeah, so I really approach 
I approach research roadmapping similarly to how someone might plan a project with, with you know, just a couple of, of, of differences. So I'm really thinking about, so in terms of your question around how long to plan out for, I think it totally depends on what's going on, where you're working. Um, so, you know, when I was at Google, we really focused on like a quarterly process of like, okay, what are our goals for the quarter? And then once in a while, we might look at two quarters out um, just for things like, okay, well, you know, we have to make some budget requests this year, um, things like that. So I think more than, you know, six months out, um, you can try and, you know, if you're going to do it, I recommend doing it like very, very high level, putting it in a format that's easily changeable just because, you know, it likely will change in some ways. Um, and even, you know, for a three month roadmap that can change. But um, so I think it really depends on, you know, the goal of the exercise, is it to align, you know, a bunch of your stakeholders to say, okay, well, you know, this is what I'm working on next. Um, is it to sort of know, okay, here's how much money we might need for the next year, or we need to hire another researcher because as you can see for this next year, we have all these projects, um, or, you know, we need to work with an agency. And also then what is the time horizon that your partners are looking at as well? You know, if you're making a one year roadmap and no one else on your team is thinking about that, that's probably a warning sign. Um, or you, you need to ask them for their thoughts of what they're gonna be doing a year from now. Um, so but that's in terms of the time horizon. So I have, like I said, I've done it for three months. I've also done it for, you know, six months, um, more than that, not as much. And then I, in terms of making the roadmap itself, um, there's a couple of things that I try and anchor on. So, you know, one of the things that you really wanna get a sense of from a roadmap is time, investment. So however that works for you, you know, for me, I like to make kind of like, a. I really honestly do this a lot of times first in a Google spreadsheet, and then I'll make like a nicer version of it in a, a slides or presentation, but, you know, really just start with like numbering off the weeks and then making blocks of time. And then, um, so, so time investment is one, you know, oh, it turns out we're actually going to need like five months for this one thing. And so what are we going to do? Cause we only have three months. <laughs> um, but I think I also try and focus around like, what are the outcomes of the research and what decisions are going to be made? So for example, you know, doing a project with a vendor, um, that's great, but like what decision is gonna be made at the end of this? And, and then that helps with the timing as well. Um, I think with a research roadmap, the, the one thing that's a little bit different from the regular project plan is it's really about um, understanding how pieces fit together um, from a method perspective. So, okay, you know, we wanna run this survey this is maybe actually dependent on doing these interviews first because the interviews are going to give us insights into the survey. So I think that's that's helpful to think about. Uh, but I, I feel like um, one of the most commonly asked interview questions for UX researchers is always something around putting together a plan to answer a question, et cetera. And so sometimes I even like in my work, I'm like, well, what if I, I was interviewing for this job and someone asked me, to do this like what would i do in my interview answer exercise because i think a lot of times that even in itself is the start of road mapping in the last part of our conversation asha talks about the following the types of qualities she looks for when interviewing and hiring ux researchers being a t-shaped research practitioner what's her secret to getting ux researcher jobs at cnn google airbnb and bloomberg getting a master's degree in human-computer interaction, and how that helped her become a confident UX researcher, the quadrant exercise that inspired her to become a UX researcher, her impactful accessibility research project, and co-creating emerging products with users at CNN. 
I'm happy that you talked about the interviews. So I would imagine one of your responsibilities as a manager is to do the research road mapping, um, plan the research strategy, but also to interview UX researchers. So can you tell me about what, so what types of, when you're interviewing UX researchers, what types of qualities are you looking for? What are you looking for that makes you say, oh, this is, this person will be a great UX researcher? Yeah, I think there's a few different things. So one is um, something that I touched on a little bit on before is communication skills. So I think I'm generally looking for somebody who can, you, you know, <laughs> communicate clearly sounds super vague. So I, I, let me think of an example. I, I think someone who can really, you know, answer the exact question that I'm asking and um, isn't, you know, like, I guess you, you might be surprised how, how many times people don't actually answer the question that I'm asking. So, you know, for example, I'll ask them, tell me about a time where you had to give challenging feedback or something like that. And people will tell me, oh, you know, well, I had this coworker um, and they gave me this feedback that was challenging or something like, you know, it, it's just kind of interesting. Sometimes I think people will sort of search for an experience that's kind of close and then they'll massage it into happening versus saying, okay, you want to hear about a time I give someone tough feedback, give me a second, let me think about this. And then I'll give you an answer. Um, so, so anyway, I, I really like um, very clear communicators. Um, I think people who have some kind of reasoning or thought process. So uh, I'm, I'm never usually looking for one specific answer. If I, if that question before that we talked about around, okay, design this fake research project. I'm very rarely looking at a list of like, well, they have to say interviews and they have to say AB testing or whatnot. Uh, but I, what I am looking for is for them to have some kind of rationale, because I think that's really representative of the actual job is, is that you'll never do perfect, you know, you'll never know like, oh, this was the perfect exact method I should have used, but you should know what those trade-offs were or have a reasoning for doing that. Um, and then I think sometimes it's also helpful to look for folks who can really, um, fill gaps that you have um, yourself or that your team might have. And so, um, you know, sometimes that's something that is really appealing to me is trying to find somebody who has a very different perspective than I do, a very different approach to research or a skill set or just life experiences too. So it sounds like you're not always looking for a specific skill set or specific expertise in a certain method per se. It's more so about having logic and reason in terms of planning a project and also having the soft skills like being able to listen critically, which is really important when you're a researcher <laughs> talking to people. So it seems like those are the two things that you look for mostly. Yeah, that I think that's a good point. I think there are, those are those are two, um, but I do think there is a third component around skills. It's not necessarily, okay, I need someone who definitely can do surveys. Although, you know, I know that some folks when they're hiring, they might have a big surveying project. And so that might be more important. For me, I'm really, from a skills perspective, I'm looking for what I think the analogy is like a T-shaped practitioner. And the idea is that this person has a couple of methods that they, are somewhat an expert in. They've done them a lot of times. They have several projects um, they can point to. And then they have maybe a few other methods that they've dabbled in, or they at least know what they are, or maybe they've done them once. Um, so from a skills perspective, I do think I still look for someone who has you know, one or a couple of methods that they're really comfortable with. And then for the other ones, they you know may never have done them, but they at least know what it is, or they know they have some ideas around when they would or wouldn't use it. For example, before becoming a research manager at CNN and being res partially responsible for interviewing people and hiring UX researchers, you were also a UX researcher at Airbnb, Google, and Bloomberg. Those are very popular companies with UX researchers. So what is your secret? How did you get into all these companies? <laughs> Tell us what you know. 
Oh, okay. I love it. Yeah. So, so Bloomberg um, was actually an experience that I had through my grad school program. Um, and again, sort of similar to my undergrad experience, one of the reasons I really chose and enjoyed the program that I did was because it had this like nine month consulting component to it. So for my, um, we call it like a capstone. I was working um, with Bloomberg um, with and with a team of other folks from my my grad program. So that was really something that I was pr like privileged to participate in through my grad program. Um, and and that was super exciting. I worked on a project with them around accessibility. And I think, um, you know, Bl Bloomberg's the the some of their products are incredibly um, powerful and they're really, you know, there's a lot of complexity to them, but there's a ton of power. And so I think I learned a lot, um, from being there around just, you know, how to design things for power users. They bring a lot of rigor to their process. They're trying to figure out how a lot of complex systems work together. So I think, um, I, I, I just was very impressed with them and how much they value sort of that rigor. So that's, I think, you know, if folks are interested in working there. I think um, definitely, you know, like understanding some, some principles of HCI and, um, and knowing how to bring a high level of rigor to your process and being able to talk about that is, I think is super valuable there. Um, Google, I had then after grad school, I went to work at Google and I had I had worked um, at Google for several years before grad school, but I think one of the things that really helped um, when going back was I applied for these new grad roles. And so um, I think Google and a lot of other tech companies have these positions, um, these new grad roles that um, I highly recommend, like if you're a student in graduate school or undergrad, taking advantage of those because there are they are slightly different from their typical roles. You can um, you know, you're not competing with the same kinds of folks for those jobs. Um, and I've also been really heartened in the last year to see a lot more opportunities from companies like Google and Facebook around more, you know, folks switching into the field. Um, I think Facebook just started like an associate UX researcher program, which I think is super cool that they're doing that. So, um, so that was part of it, but I feel, I think, you know, at Google, um, and throughout my interview process, it was, you know, they, I think, you know, they're really interested in impact and, um, and how to communicate that impact. And so whenever I look at someone's resume and they're thinking about Google, I always ask them, you know, where, what's the impact? Um, you know, you can have a resume built that says, I did three studies um, across 70 participants asking them about the usability of, you know, this e-commerce site. And that's great, but I think um, it's really important to be able to say like, what was the outcome of that? And that, so that bullet could then become something like, you know, I reduced the error rate by 50% by doing these three studies on these e-commerce site, or I identified, you know, 20 really critical errors on this site through doing these usability testing. Um, and at Google, I, I think, you know, I, I've had like really amazing experiences everywhere. Like I wouldn't trade them. And I, I think Google um, really made me like a, a, you know, even before I was a researcher, it made me a really like excellent communicator. I feel like all my general work skills about like learning to work with people, manage stakeholders, all that I got from, from working there. Um, but I would say as a researcher, you know, that importance of, of being able to communicate super clearly, I think data is super important at Google, just in terms of like, my experience was that I actually found it really, you know, a, they take like data privacy extremely seriously. And so knowing the minimum amount of data that you need to answer your question and understanding how to, you know, use data to answer a question, to marry that with qualitative insights was really important. But ultimately, I think one thing that is really important there is just understanding the product that you're working on inside and out. Um, huge amount of engineering talent at Google, not a secret, but um, but I think that really helped me in my UX research work was just knowing, you know, 
I worked on the advertising product mostly as a researcher and just knowing and understanding that product inside it out helped me so much um, during my time there. Um, and then the most recently I was at Airbnb. Um, I think Airbnb, in my experience there, it's just like, they have an amazing culture. Um, you know, they have these core values. And so, you know, I think it, it was like a much more community minded UX, UX research practice than I had experienced necessarily before. And um, so I think that there, you know, they really, and, and also like really high quality, like presentations and deliverables. Um, definitely found those at Google and, Air, uh, and Bloomberg as well, but Airbnb, you know, it's a very design driven company in some ways, and that even extends to UX research and how you're sharing what you're learning. So um, that was my experience there. So it sounds like the big, it sounds like your secret is the fact that you convey the impact your UX research had on the products you worked on. That's, that sounds like that was like the secret in your sauce. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think that can't really, that can't be underestimated. And, and I think the second thing I would add is just that the thought process part of it. So when I approach my interviews, when I approach you know, um, my portfolio, which is very <laughs> sparse. I, um, I really think about, okay, I really keep that mindset of, okay, there's no right answer and take the time Asha to think about like, why am I recommending this? Or why would I do this thing? Like, what would I actually do in this situation? So, um, and that sometimes involves just like slowing down your brain or, or asking for a moment to write stuff down. I mean, during my interviews, I definitely sometimes would, you know, write stuff down on a pen and paper, especially if I was asked to plan something out. And I think that that really helps too. Throughout your process, so throughout our conversation, you've mentioned a few times how much your education, your educational experiences have shaped you pretty significantly in terms of your career. So you mentioned like the experience in Qatar, which was through your school, um, your experience with Bloomberg, which was through your university as well. And you also earned a master's in human computer interaction from Carnegie Mellon. So what made you decide to further your education and get your master's degree? Yeah, so, um... The Bloomberg experience I had was through that Carnegie Mellon program. Um, and what made me decide to do it? I think a couple of things. Um, I So I had been working actually within a lot of um, kind of business and operations work. And I had gotten to do some one-off UX research projects as part of that. I think also a lot of that role incorporated UX research e-skills like user feedback and customer insights. But ultimately, I think there were a few things. One is um, I, I, I kind of decided that I, I really just was inspired to become a UX researcher for a couple of reasons. One is my coworker did this exercise with me where you draw four quadrants and you have to write what you think you're good at, what you think you're bad at, what you love doing, what you hate doing. And so I kind of, you know, filled that out and looking at the, the, the answers I'd given, I was like, oh, this really looks like a UX researcher's job. Um, I think I also felt like I was at a crossroads in my career where if I kept going in my job, I would grow really exponentially and that would be really great, but then it really would become my career. And I wasn't sure that that was the career that I wanted. Uh, I don't think you have to be a hundred percent sure, but I, I think the last thing that really convinced me was just, you know, this is kind of a silly signal, but looking at people's LinkedIn pages and just feeling the sense of like jealousy, you know, like oh, this, this person has such a cool job. And I, I just felt like, okay, you know, you're, you've only been working for like five or six years why, you know, you could try that, you know, you don't, you don't feel like you're locked in. So that all, all, you know, made me want to be a UX researcher or try it, try being it out. And then, then grad school um, followed from that because um, I think number one, 
I, I'm the kind of person where if I'm working on something, I really need to be hundred, I'm really a hundred percent in whatever I'm doing. And so I, I had talked to people at Google and outside who were UX researchers and tried to get, get a sense of if I needed to go to grad school. Um, a lot, I will say a lot of folks I talked to didn't necessarily go to grad school. I don't think it's a requirement to be a UX researcher and, or like an, an amazing UX researcher. Um, but I think for the folks I know who had been working and who moved over, it did involve, you know, a lot of side projects. Um, I knew some people who had done school part-time and I think that like, I have so much respect for people who do that because I think that involves, you know, doing your job and learning something new at the same time. Um, but ultimately I, I, I knew that like, if I was going to do it, I wanted to be completely immersed in it. And I think I also had the privilege of being able to go back to school. Not everybody always has that either. Um, but because I could, you know, afford that year, afford that time, um, I, that, I, that's why I was um, so into it. I, I also found a couple of programs that were a year long and I really actually love uh, working. <laughs> like I, I love the, the lifestyle of working. I really love, you know, having like five days a week where you're, you're on and then having that time off versus I think in school that line blurs a lot more. Um, so I, I kind of was like, I really just want to get back in the workforce as quickly as possible and, tr and try out being a UX researcher. And so finding those year long programs was really encouraging for me because I was like, okay, well, this is one path to do it. Um, I think the last thing was for me, I also felt like to, ha to have the confidence that I wanted to have as UX researcher, um, grad school would make me feel like, you know, I'd really done my due diligence and, um, and that I had sort of the like right level of rigor. Um, but again, I do think you can get that from other places. Just for me, I felt most confident getting that from, from grad school. Yeah, I like what you said about preferring the workforce to being in school in the same way. So I get it. <laughs> so in terms of being in the workforce as a UX researcher, so you've worked at many different places. Can you tell us about one of your most memorable or impactful UX research projects? Yeah, so I think the project that I mentioned at Bloomberg is one of my most impactful. Um, and I, selfishly, it's like, I feel like the, the impact was mostly on myself. <laughs> That's why it's so memorable. But um, the, the project that I worked on was around accessibility and it was involved. I can't speak necessarily to all the details of the project, but, but it was, you know, a large component of it was about understanding the experience of people with, with a variety of, of types of disabilities. And I think it, it was super impactful and memorable for a number of different reasons. I think number one, in UX research, we kind of always have this cliche of, you know, you are not the user, but I think especially doing research with people whose experiences with technology are, you know, fundamentally different, like completely different interaction patterns um, than, you know, like using a website and a screen reader, complete, you know, it's a completely different experience than, um, someone who is sighted looking and, and, and just in taking information. And so I think it really, you know, I think it made me realize truly, um, how aware I need to be of just the spectrum of interactions people are having with things. And I think it also really, um, made me feel, uh, it made me realize how important I think functions like UX research are in that, um, you know, this is going to sound super grandiose, but like our society is just becoming way more integrated with technology. And that can be a really, really great thing, but it can also be, you know, exclusive sometimes. And so thinking about how we can create experiences that aren't excluding people and, and, you know, unintentionally or intentionally, but I'd like to think mostly unintentionally, um, I think is really important. And UX research is 
one of the key places where that can happen, right? Where we can say, hey, actually, you know, you need to, you know, you've created this beautiful thing, but a huge percentage of the population can't get any value out of that, right? Or especially tools for power, like a bank account, like a, you know, things where um, everybody should be able to do online banking and that kind of thing. So um, that was really uh, exciting and, and rewarding project for me. I always love talking to other UX researchers where I hear a common theme of UX research as a form of like advocacy for other people, especially in terms of accessibility. So I, I always love hearing about that. Um, yeah. So which research methods have you used most frequently at CNN? And also overall, what is it like working as a UX researcher at such a popular uh, media company? Yeah, so because I'm working on emerging products and platforms, um, I think there's been a lot of really interesting methods that um, I've been able to, 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 to use and to try out as well. Um, I, I think going from sort of a, from nothing to having a product means that um, myself and my team have gotten to do things, you know, as foundational as really like observation and interviews, just understanding people's lived current experience, which I always find really exciting. Um, and, and I feel like people love talking about problems. So it's always really interesting um, to, you know, things like um, need validation. I think that's something that I find really exciting, you know, just showing people things and asking them to solve a problem for you. Have you had this problem in the past? Um, what do you think of this solution kind of, kind of um, stage in the cycle? And then through design research, like co-design um, and, um, you know, card sorting, kind of like building things together and getting that, that design feedback, I think is something that is sometimes undervalued um, or, or not undervalued, but that's kind of the stage where sometimes research can get a little left out, um, because they've done the really foundational stuff, found the problems, and then sometimes they're just brought back in for the evaluating the solution. So I've really enjoyed doing that at CNN is that middle stage of research, like having our users create things with us or having them, um, you know, give us insights during that design phase. And then, you know, from evaluative perspective, again, because our products are so new, we haven't um, been able to do a ton of like, you know, super external or large sample stuff here. But I think definitely usability, um, doing some diary studies. Um, so really has kind of run the gamut, I think, <laughs> in terms of what we're, what I've been able to do so far. And I think in terms of working somewhere like CNN, um, I think in this last year, um, you know, CNN has like a really established research function that I think does a lot of really great work. Um, and it kind of spans like market research, a lot of reporting and analytics, but UX research specifically is a little bit newer to the company. I think they've worked a lot with external agencies in the past, but in the last year or so, um, UX research has been sort of newer and to, to be inside the company. And so it's been really exciting to sort of, um, you know, work with my fellow other new UX researchers on sort of creating the UX culture, um, educating people about like the pros and cons or, or what the value and the shortcomings of UX research. And then also just learning from other researchers in the profession. Um, but yeah, I think that this year, certainly, uh, you know, it shouldn't be surprising to anybody that there's been a lot of news. And so I think um, there's a lot of interesting things that we have to think about as researchers um, in the media space, because, you know, this, this last year has really been like, not been like any other, um, at least in the last, you know, 30, 20 or 30 years. And so um, that, that has been a really interesting thing that to keep in mind for us is kind of like, what does this mean about people's um, interaction with the news, how will that change? Um, I think in general for UX researchers, like this last year, 
people's consumption habits feel like they're shifting. So, you know, what does that mean for us and that kind of thing? Um, but yeah, it's also kind of, you know, um, with the election and everything, people are like, Hey, can you like, you know, connect me with John King? I love him and the magic wall. And I have basically no power or authority there. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm glad people enjoy him. So this is my last question here in the last few minutes. So how, how long did it take you to feel like a UX research expert? Do you feel like a UX research expert? No, (laughs) I don't. Um, No, I I still don't really feel like an expert. Um, I think sometimes UX research can really some just sound like common sense you know, which, which takes away sometimes the feeling of like, well, other people, you know, already know this, or like, I won't, I won't have a unique or like additional perspective here. Saying things like, you know, you shouldn't ask leading questions. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Like, um, but in fact, you know, through working and through talking to people, it, it actually is really hard for people sometimes to not do that. And I think over the years I've realized it can be really easy to do bad research. Um, And so to me, I think being an expert means having some amount of rigor, um, which, which doesn't mean you do perfect research. I don't think, you know, a perfect research project is even possible. (laughs) Like, but I think being an expert means you can, you've thought about the limitations of your work and you can acknowledge the biases in your work um, and still, draw meaning out of it. That to me is being an expert. Um, but yeah, I still, I still don't really feel like one. And, um, so maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe to be a true expert, you confidence is, is a piece of it, or I'm, I'm not really sure, but. To me, Asha is a UX research expert. She's incredibly experienced, and it's refreshing to hear her be so humble and say that she does not consider herself a UX research expert. If you are applying for UX researcher roles anytime soon, do yourself a favor and rewind this episode and listen to the advice Asha gave about interviewing. If you miss any of the highlights from this episode, visit yizziresearch.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe for updates on new episodes. If you are interested in sponsoring this podcast, or if you are looking to hire someone to help you understand your users and your customers, visit yizziresearch.com. Follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Yizzy Research. That's Y-Z-Z-I Research. Bye for now.